0: So we're in the middle of the series on Jonah. We're also in the middle of a kind of a crazy world at the moment, aren't we? Um, I want to talk about our hearts today. That's really what this passage about Jonah is about when I, when I break it down and, and I see what's going on. Jonah's been through some craziness. But what I see going on in this passage today is really all about Jonah's heart. And we've got a lot of words for heart, that, that describe us, how we feel, who we are. that talk about the condition of our hearts. we got a lot of words. The people that live up in the northern part of the world, they've got lots of words for ice because it's a big part of their life. We seem to have a lot of words for heart because somehow that's important to us. You know what I mean? There's people that have a soft heart, right? We like those people. There's people that have a hardened heart. Some people you'd say they've got a bleeding heart. There's the cold heart, the gentle heart. If you're from the South, and here's a shout-out to my Southern kinfolk who regularly watch us. They've got a phrase, oh, bless her heart. i tell you, my Northern friends, that's not always a compliment. We don't understand that. We think it sounds so drippy sweet, but it really isn't. How would you describe your heart? More importantly, maybe, how would other people describe your heart? How would the people who know you well, the folks that you work with, your family... Your kids, how would they describe your heart? What kind of words would they use? you generous, giving, selfish, gentle, prideful, cold, aloof, distant. The fact is, the way the rest of the world sees us might be very different than the way that we see ourselves because the things that we think don't always translate to the things that we do. We're going to talk about that today. See, Jonah sees himself as being uh, righteous, that he's got a righteous heart in his anger towards God and the people that he's sent to. When we left him last week, if you remember, Jonah had prayed, and at the end of that prayer, the giant fish had spit Jonah up onto dry land. Now, don't ask me how Jonah survived three days in the belly of a fish. I can't explain it to you, but it's in God's Word, so I believe that it happened. So I'm going to tell you what it is that we're told. And it isn't a story, it's history. Jonah was spit up onto dry land. Well, that sounds kind of interesting because he's trying to run away and go somewhere else. But actually, the Hebrew gives us a bit of a different understanding of that. The fish didn't spit him up at all. He vomited him up. He vomited him up onto dry land. He, he forcefully expelled him from the belly. The belly of that fish that had been his tomb until God brought him back out to the land of the living. It's like when Jesus says that you should either be hot or cold because if we're lukewarm, he's going to spit us out of his mouth. Guess what? Similar translation. Vomit you out. What's the whole idea? The idea is decide who you're going to be. Are you going to be hot or are you going to be cold? Are you going to be a Christian or are you going to be a yeah, something else? But don't be a little bit of one and a little bit of the other. Figure out who you're going to be and then go do it. Be the person you claim to be. The fish vomited Jonah out onto the land. First one, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God gave Jonah a second chance. He's in the belly of the fish. He spit out onto dry land. God comes to him again. doesn't give him a different command. doesn't give him something new to do. Despite his sin, despite his childish and rebellious spirit, God came to Jonah a second time with the same opportunity. I can't tell you how much that gives me hope. That gives me hope because I know I've not always done what I'm supposed to do the first time. It gives me hope that even God gave Jonah a second chance who tried to ignore God, who disobeyed God, who tried to run away from God. I've done the same thing, and I bet you have too. I'm not proud of it, but I've done it. See, what Jonah reminds us of, and and the Bible is full of this, is we we get this idea that, well, you know what? I'm going to give something up or I'm going to take some time and I'm going to chase God. I'm going to chase hard after God. That's a fine decision. I would encourage you to do that. But the fact of the matter is God's pursuing you. God is pursuing you. And the reason that we know that is because God is the one who gives us second chances because we are people of multiple sins. If we were like Jonah and, and, and we had... Send once and it would have been a big old doozy like what Jonah's was and God wasn't the God of second chances where would you be? And you're like, Jonah, we tend to take that a little bit for granted. So, verse 2, it goes on. It says, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. Well, God doesn't actually tell us. The Bible doesn't tell us what the message is going to be at this point. He just says, go proclaim the message. The Hebrew actually adds a word that most of our Bibles don't have. The word that the Hebrew adds is arise. That's going to be important in a minute. What God is really saying to Jonah is get up. Get up off your butt and go do something. He's been spit up out of this fish. He's probably lying on the beach, going, "Whoa, is me? My life is miserable." And God says, "Jonah, get up." Get up and go do something. Because, you know, if you're going to do something, it starts with arise. It starts with getting up. God's command to Jonah hadn't changed. What had changed was Jonah's circumstance because now Jonah has been so humiliated, so utterly wiped clean of himself in the stinky belly of that fish that he was ready to obey God, not just listen to God. But sadly, you know, we have a hard time getting that straight too. How often do we have to be crushed? We've heard God. We know the right thing to do. We choose to do what we want. We ignore God. Maybe we run from God. And we end up getting crushed and we blame our circumstances in the world and we never take the responsibility and we find ourselves in what we call the bottom of the barrel before we're listening to God. Jonah found himself at the bottom of the belly. But you know, Jonah never doubted God. That's the thing that comes through. He he knew God too well to doubt God because he knew, and we're going to find this out in the next chapter, He knew that God is a God of love and compassion. Jonah knew God's heart. He knew his character. He just chose not to obey God because he knew what God was up to. So it brings us to a really important question and put yourself into the midst of the passage now. Can you say you're listening to God? And and I get people all the time that say, I'm not sure how to hear God. I'm not sure when God's talking to me. Is it my idea? Is it God? How do I know? Are you really listening to God if you're not obeying God? Are you really listening to God if you're not doing the things that God is telling you to do? If we don't obey what God says, are we even listening? We say that we love God, but you know what? Love is an action word. Love requires us to do something, right? L- love is an action word, and you know that from personal relationships. You can't tell someone that you love them and then act like you don't. Love requires something from us. Love requires something from us. It doesn't just require something of us. It requires us to do something. It isn't just something that we receive. It is something that we do. It is what we become. It is who we are for another person. So Jonah decides to obey the word of the Lord. Not only does he listen, he decides to obey the word of the Lord. And he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. What the Bible is really saying is that Nineveh is probably bigger than what you can imagine. Three days of walking if you're going to stop and check out the sites. History tells us that at one point in, in time, Nineveh was the largest city in the world. It was big. It was also an interesting place for God to want to send Jonah, especially given the fact Of where Jonah tried to go. Here's a map, and this is about to be a technological wonder. We're going from live feed to a map. Peggy, way to go. Thank you. Joppa is where all this thing started, right? Uh, Southeast coast of the Mediterranean, the arrow on the right, the little short one, uh, that would kind of go through much of what is now modern Israel. Nineveh, up to the upper right there that you're looking at, 550 miles from Joppa, a journey that he would have had to take on foot. That is now in what we would understand as northern Iraq, to get your your map straight. Here's what happens. Jonah gets the word from God, go to Nineveh and deliver the message that I'm telling you. And so Jonah should make his way 550 miles to Nineveh. Jonah, however, decides, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to talk to them because, God, you're always up to something good and I don't want to be a part of it. He picks the furthest place that he can imagine. Tarshish, all the way across the Mediterranean, is literally as far as anybody's gone. He says, I'm going to go as far away. That's, I'm going to find a ship, and that's where I'm going to head. God, you can take your plan to, to Nineveh. That's fine. I'm going this way. Now, it's not like what you and I have done, because we've all turned out of the gas station in the city you don't recognize, and suddenly you're heading down the wrong direction on the road, and the GPS keeps screaming at you, right? Right? This is him saying, no. I know where I'm supposed to go. I'm not going there. He is living in active defiance, in disobedience. He turns his back on Nineveh, and he turns his back on God. He runs to Tarshish. God puts him in the belly of a fish. He spits him up on dry land, and again he says, arise and go. Same place you don't want to. So Jonah gets there in verse 4 and he begins by going a a day's journey into the city proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Basically what's happening is by being one day into the three days journey he's in the middle of town. He's in the middle of the big city. And he starts proclaiming what it is that God tells him to say. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He starts yelling at the Ninevites that total destruction is coming your way. You've just got a little bit over a month because here it comes. But he doesn't say who he is. He doesn't say, I'm speaking for another king. He doesn't say, I'm speaking for God. He doesn't say, I'm a crazy guy who's just telling you what I hope happens. He just simply speaks the word that God tells him to speak. The fact is that He's telling them exactly what He hopes will happen. I think that if we had been able to listen to Jonah's tone of voice, which we can't do through the words that are written, I think Jonah would have said, 40 more days and you're going to be overthrown. 40 more days, you're going to be wiped off the planet. Jonah would have been thrilled. I think if he had his way, he would have sat outside the walls of the city for 41 days just to watch the smoke. That would have been what Jonah wanted. He didn't want God to forgive them. He wanted Nineveh destroyed. See, what Jonah knew and the reason he ran is that he knows that God is a God of compassion. He knows that God is a God of love and he doesn't want God to relent because, oh, that's what God does. He forgives people. Jonah wants the Ninevites to pay for their sins and have them destroyed. That message that he got to send sounded perfect to Jonah. Forty more days and you'll be overthrown. But now that he's there, something else might happen and, oh, compassionate God might show up. Funny thing is, the text never says that Jonah took his own sin into consideration. You know, Much like many of us, I think we need to get real for a moment and say, it's so easy to point to the sins of other people, isn't it? It's so easy to say, well, I know enough of my Bible to know that he's doing something wrong. She's doing something wrong. He's really doing something wrong. Right? It's kind of the thing that I hear all the time and now none of you will ever say this again. I know that. You, people say all the time, man, that was such, a, that was such an interesting thing. That was a, a powerful thing you said. I'm really glad that I heard this in the sermon. Oh, you know, Pastor so-and-so said this, and it was great. I really hope so-and-so hears that. Right? Because their sin is so bad that that would set them straight. Well, if God is a God that sets divine appointments with His people like He did with Jonah, like He does with you and I, you were there to hear the message, that means the message is probably for you. Am I right? Oh, but we don't like those. We don't like the messages that we don't like, just like Jonah didn't like to have to bring the word that God taught him to, or told him to bring. But if God brought you to hear a message, God probably needs you to hear that message. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed in God. What an interesting response. These people who are about to be obliterated from the earth believe in God. Uh, a fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Isn't that interesting? Jonah never said that he was speaking for God. Nowhere in the text does it tell us that. What it says is the people believed God. It doesn't say anything about repentance. He doesn't say anything about changing their minds or doing anything else. All he does is brings this message of destruction, gloom and doom. And the response of the people is they believed God. Their first response was to be convicted of their sin. See, they, they, they knew their sin. They knew who they were and how they were living. And they chose to repent. They, they knew that they needed to repent. But even more than that, they did something about it. Here's what that tells me. We all know our sin. Christian or non-Christian. We know when we're wrong. Whether you believe in God or whether you don't, you know when you've crossed God's line. You know when you've sinned and you've gone into territory that isn't where you're supposed to be. There's just something in us that knows that. For ten years... I have said when we welcome people, when people come, when they, when they take the brave step to come and see who we are, when they take the brave step to come to a church the first time, I don't care what you know or what you think you know about them. I don't care what their reputation is, who other people say they... I don't care. We're going to welcome them. We're going to love them. And we're going to invite them to come in. Aren't we? You know why? Because that's who we're called to be as Christians. If they come here and you know their sin, they know their sin. They don't need you to tell them about it. I've got news for you. Folks who are coming from a place where they're looking for Jesus aren't coming for us to tell them where they're wrong. They're coming to look for Jesus to tell them where they're going to be okay. Right? The people knew their sin. They knew that they'd crossed a the line. And, and the problem with us is that our pride, our pride prevents us from admitting it. And so what we do is we put someone else on the chopping block instead of ourselves. We talk about their sin rather than our own. It's arrogance that keeps us keeping on. It's honestly ignorance of the incredible power of God that keeps us moving forward in our sin rather than confessing it and stopping it. And the easiest thing in the world is to distract people from our own sin by pointing out the sin of someone else. If I hear anything about why people are sick of church, it's because, you know what, you talk about grace and forgiveness and I've never found it once. If we don't find grace and forgiveness in church, where are we going to find it? Are not we the ones who should be showing that, modeling that, and being an example of that? When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he took off his royal robes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat down in the dust. Do you get that? He arose. He got up. He did something. Just like God told Jonah to do. Get up. I've got a job for you. The very first thing the, kid do, the king does when he hears about it is he rises from his throne. He takes off all of the clothing that would make him special looking. He covered himself in sackcloth. is something that the poorest of the poor wouldn't want to wear. And he sits down in the dust. See, the people, they acted on their own behalf. They didn't need the king to tell them. They didn't want to be destroyed and they knew they were living wrong. When word finally reached the king, he did the same thing. He he humbles himself by taking off his robes. He puts on the sackcloth of a pauper and he sits in the dust as a sign of his own mortality in recognition of his sinfulness and admittance of his sinfulness. And in verse 7, he issues a proclamation. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let the people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. It seems odd that he would punish the animals as well as the people. But he says, no people, no animals are going to eat or drink anything. What he's really doing is he's telling the people who have been living, indulging every pleasure that they can imagine, he says, we're going to deny ourselves even the most simple of pleasures. I suppose that's the original intention behind the the season of Lent, that we give up something that's really important to us, something of value. But of course, we've made it about us and we almost make a mockery of Lent as though giving something up is going to impress God. He says, No food and no drink for people or for animals. And they lived in the desert. Verse 8, But people let, uh, but p- let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Uh, this is a serious come-to-Jesus moment. The king is saying, we're going to change our behavior right now. And not only that, we're not going to change our behavior and continue to be arrogant. We're going to change our behavior and be as humble as we can be. I I read uh, from a Jewish commentator writer, did not believe in Jesus. And the whole point was, we can dismiss the book of Jonah as being a silly story because who in the world is going to say that the, the cattle have to be dressed in sackcloth? Can you imagine them trying to put sackcloth on cattle? No, I can't actually, but you know what? It's an awful strong statement of the depths that the king was willing to go to to show repentance. And what he was really saying was, you know what, God, we've got no right to stand before you living the way we've been living. I wonder if we understood that with our place with Jesus, if it would change how we approach repentance. You know, I wonder... I wonder with our own come-to-Jesus moments what we do with them. you had one of those? Has your sin, has your rebellion against God ever brought you to your knees? Has has the reality of something that you have done that is against God's will for your life completely devastated you? I'm not talking get caught. That's called being embarrassed. I'm talking about have you done something that you knew was so wrong you realize that you had sinned against God Himself. And if you didn't do something different, your life as you knew it was going to end. That's where they are. King says in verse 9, Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from His fierce anger so that we will not perish. It's interesting, this king that's been living these people who are completely as far away from God's will as they could be, knows God's heart. He knows that God is a God of compassion. It reminds me of the words that David said to Jonathan when they were looking at attacking the Philistines. Who knows? God may act on our behalf. No promises. Who knows? But the possibility of God for us is infinitely better than the the idea of God not being for us. I think if we really understood God's wrath, we would pray the same thing. God, forgive me. Maybe God will relent and have compassion on us and turn from His fierce anger over our sinfulness, over our rebellion, over our running away from Him, so that we will not die in our sins. And that's where we say, thank you, Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. Because the king is hoping that God will relent. The king is hoping that God will show some amount of compassion that he realizes they don't deserve. And we look at Jesus so often as going, well, I believe, therefore I deserve. No, we don't. If we understood the gift that we really have in salvation in Jesus, I think it would change us in a way that we could never say thank you enough. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He relented. And He did not bring on them the destruction He had threatened. God had compassion. didn't change His mind. He relented. God was consistent with His character. He forgave them. He gave them a second chance, just like He gave Jonah, just like He gives you and I. And what we find out is that God won't bless our disobedience, but God will bless our obedience when we turn from our sin and we repent. See, God can't bless our disobedience, but He'll bless our repentance. He will relent when we repent. We know that because we know Jesus, we've got the promise. We know who He is and what He's done. God didn't destroy the Ninevites because they acknowledged the sin that they had been living in and they turned from it. They collectively arose and did something. They changed their actions. Jonah, the man of God, he did what he had to do. Actually, it took him two times to do what he had to do. He was obedient, but he wasn't joyful. He didn't act out of love for the people. He didn't act out of fear for God. He didn't act off of, out of any sense of gratitude. He did nothing more than he had to do. His heart wasn't in it. You talk about having a cold heart. Jonah had a cold heart. There was no love, no compassion. When he spoke to the people, he was hoping that they were destroyed. He spoke words of death and destruction. He didn't speak about repentance or reconciliation. He didn't speak about forgiveness or apology. He certainly didn't speak out of a love or a concern for them. He spoke out of what he hoped would happen and feared that God wouldn't carry through. One of the big lessons in Jonah for me is that the real honest condition of our heart, because remember we got a lot of words to describe our hearts, the real honest condition of our heart doesn't matter as much as the consistent character of God. Because on our best days, on my best day, my heart is not what God would have it to be. If the people of the world depended on the goodness of our hearts to be saved, the world would be doomed. Think about that. If the people of the world depend on the goodness of our hearts to be saved, the world would be doomed. Instead, the people of the world have the hope of salvation and the selfless act of Jesus' death on the cross for their sins. Jesus died for us when we were still sinners. And at what point are we going to get up and go do something? See, Jonah doesn't seem to understand God even at this point. He wants God to hate the people he hates. But he knows that God loves everybody, that God loves everyone, all people, even the mean ones. But we don't want God to love the mean people, do we? In 1 Timothy 2.4 it says, God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Something about Jonah knows that God is compassionate and he doesn't want compassion shown on the Ninevites. And what we see in this passage is that God loves a heart of obedience and repentance. Those things in a human heart move the heart of God. Your obedience and your repentance moves the heart of God in a way that you'll never understand. The people of Nineveh, including the king, heard God's voice through Jonah through a man that one of them destroyed. He longed for their destruction, and yet because Jonah was obedient to God, even in his rebellion, he was the instrument that God used to save people. And it makes me wonder, if you and I are just willing, if we as a church are just willing, what could God do through us? We talk about being a part of changing the culture for Jesus in our area. Do we believe it? Are we committed to it? Are we we really, are we really concerned about people that don't know Him? Do we really love people who don't love Jesus, or do we just like to gather with people who are like us? See, Jonah, he didn't want to go to the Ninevites because they weren't like him. They had killed his people. He was what was left. And yet God used him because in the end he was willing to be obedient. And I cannot even begin to imagine what God would use us for if we were willing. Jonah knew the character of God. He knew that God is love and compassion even for sinful people. See, Jonah didn't doubt God's compassion. Jonah didn't doubt how much God loved. In fact, it's why he ran. He was afraid that that's what God was going to do. Jonah's not telling us that he doubted God's love for humanity. And this is important. Jonah's telling us that he doubted and he didn't trust God's wisdom for his life. He knows that God is compassion and love. He knows God's character. He just doesn't trust God's wisdom. It's not any different than the rebellious teen who is convinced that mom and dad don't know anything. You know, I actually have heard this line, Mom and dad, the world's changed a lot since you were a kid. Yep, but God hasn't. Sin's still sin. Bible's still the Bible. God's still on His throne. The world's changed. You're right. See, children trust that we love them as parents. What they don't trust because they don't like it is our wisdom as parents because we make decisions based on what we know. I've I've told my girls for years, I said, you know what? You're both bright. You're smart. It isn't what you know that's going to get you in trouble. It's how much you don't know that's going to get you in trouble. And as parents, we love them and we want the best for them, and so we want to share with them the hard-earned wisdom that we have accumulated. That's true for teenagers, it's true for Jonah, and it's true for you and I as we learn to trust God. If we say that we love and trust God, then we need to trust God for His wisdom about our lives, even when we don't understand it or don't like it. One of the hallmarks of maturity as a Christian is the acceptance that we just don't know it all. But you know what? When we stray from God's Word, when we stray from God's wisdom, we find ourselves in a heap of trouble just like Jonah did. Do you love God and listen and obey and do you trust His wisdom or do you just like the idea of the forgiveness of your sins? See, do you love God enough to trust Him when you don't like what He says? Do you love God enough to trust Him when you think that you know better or you don't understand or you think that God doesn't know your situation, that, that, yeah, that might be true for everybody else, but God, that's not true for me. I'm the exception here. How much do you really love and trust God? See, we're all nodding. Sure, yeah, I trust God. Absolutely. So let's put it to the test. Let's let's just do this. Let's jump on toes, shall we? Let's see how we really feel about loving and trusting God and His wisdom. Let's get down to where The truth tells all and hurts. Do you trust God's wisdom for your life enough to trust Him with the one thing that He says, test me on? Do you trust God's love for you and His wisdom enough to trust Him with your money? Do you trust Him enough to honor Him with your tithe? Because that's where the rubber hits the road, so they say, isn't it? We're we're pretty much a part of this statistic that's true across the country. Did you know that among Christians who are regular church attenders in the United States, roughly 2.5% of us tithe? 97.5% of us do not. True for us, true for us across the Christian church in America. That's quite an interesting statistic, isn't it? 97.5% of us don't actually trust God enough with our day-to-day life that we believe that if we give 10 cents on the dollar back to Him as He asks, that He will continue to take care of us. You know why? Because we think we know better. Because we've got a scarcity mindset. We're going to run out, so we better take care of it. Yet God says, test me on this. He knows we're doubters. And He says, go ahead and test me. I will prove it to you. He knows that we're of little faith. We trust Him to forgive us. We trust Him with our life after we die, but do you trust Him with your life here and now while you're living it? Do you trust Him to continue to provide for you even if you don't see a way? How in the world do we think that we're going to give Him our hearts when we don't trust Him enough to give Him ten cents on the dollar? And yet we do immediately begin to justify why we can't afford that. God, you don't understand my situation. If we can't trust God with something that disappears as quickly as money, how will we really trust Him with something that actually matters? How will we trust Him by loving and caring for other people? That's what matters. Human souls mean everything to God. God's trusted us with something much more of value than money. He's trusted us the good news of Jesus, and it isn't just for us. It's for the world. Our tithing, just like our testimony, is what helps to get the life-changing news of salvation of Jesus out into the world. We don't stop sinning when we start obeying, but we begin to understand the heart of God, the character of God much better. When we begin to step into obedience, we begin to understand what God is doing. And we begin to see glimpses of how and why. That happens when we move our focus from selfishly caring for ourselves and our wants and protecting the things that we think we deserve, because that's what Jonah did. He was selfish. To moving to care about the things that God cares most about, people, even sinful people who don't believe, people who aren't like us, people who are mean, people who deserve to be punished. So my question is, and in the next few minutes, I want to I hope that we can bring this home. Are you willing to pray for salvation for people who you don't like? Are you willing to pray that Jesus becomes real and forgives the sins of people who have been mean to you? Are you willing to pray that Jesus becomes real to people who don't look like you? Who don't talk like you? Who don't treat you well or walk by you or dismiss you or who make you feel uncomfortable? Are you willing to pray for salvation for people the news says want you dead? See, I don't want to be a church full of people like Jonah that run from the hard thing. Will we give what we have in Jesus so that other people can have it too? I can't answer that question for you, but I can say as a senior pastor of church, yes, we will. We will do whatever it takes to reach people. We'll do whatever it takes to reach people with the love of Jesus because the one thing that I will not tolerate is spending my life knowing I didn't do everything that I possibly could to introduce anyone and everyone whose path I crossed to Jesus because He's the only hope that we have. We've got a song that we're, you're very familiar with. We sing it all the time. But you know what? I think in light of Jonah and in light of God's call for us to go out into the world to give the very best of what we have, if we really believe in salvation in Jesus, this song takes on a very different feel. Would you please stand with me? Let's sing.
1: There's no shadow you won't light up Mountain you won't climb up Coming after me
0: Those words sound so good. They make me feel good. They make you feel good, don't they? That God will stop at nothing to reach you, but what will you do to reach people who don't know Him? That's so why we as a church have talked about changing the culture in this area not to be like us, but to be more like Jesus. It's so why we as a church are deeply invested. In Colombia, the Philippines, and Haiti. Because we want to give the very best of what we have and the very best of who we are. So that the people of the world who don't know Jesus have an opportunity to know Jesus
1: there's no shadow we won't light up mountain we won't climb up coming after you there's no wall we won't kid down lie we won't tear down the coming after you No shadow we won't light up. Mountain we won't climb up. Coming after you. No wall we won't kick down. Lie we won't tear down. Coming after you.
0: You know me very well. You know one of the words drives me is the word cannot. You can't do that. You're not supposed to do that. That's not going to work. You shouldn't do that. You know what? Maybe that means that you haven't figured out a way how to do it, but God's got a way to figure out how to do it. And we're going to figure out what that way is. What is it that you won't do to reach people? See, as Christians, what are you willing to do to help us reach the world for Jesus? Do you have limits on what you'll give or what you'll do? Because if you do, then you're thinking like Jonah did. There's some people who don't deserve the love and compassion for Jesus, and that just isn't going to work in this place. That's not who we are, and that's not who we're going to be.
1: There's no shadow I won't light up, mountain I won't climb up, coming after you. There's no wall I won't kick down, lie I won't tear down, coming after you.
0: As a disciple of Jesus, you've got to be able to take a look at the world and see what's really going on. Because the last few days, you know what? We've been going to stores to find toilet paper rather than going to reach people with the good news of Jesus. As a disciple, that's not okay. We're called to go. We're called to go to our families. We're called to go to the people that we work with, to our friends, to the ends of the earth, to people that we don't like or who don't like us. Because you know what? The one thing that is not tolerable to me It is not okay to not talk to someone about Jesus because you don't like them. God's not going to let us off the hook for that. God's not going to say it's okay because they didn't treat you very well. You didn't have to. God's not going to say, you know what, they were mean. You didn't, you didn't have to tell them about me. You know what God is going to say is, who did you talk to? How did you share your testimony? What did you do to see that the good news of my son Jesus reached everybody in the world? What's not tolerable to me is to leave this earth not reaching everyone that we can reach. Every single person. So what is it that you are willing to do? What are you willing to do to get the good news of Jesus to the people of the world?
1: No shadow I won't light up mountain I won't climb up Coming after you So I won't kick down I won't tear down Shadow, I won't light up. Mountain I won't climb up. Coming after you. There's no wall I won't kick down. Lie, I won't tear down. Coming after you. Bring it to me. There's no shadow I won't light up. Mountain I won't climb up. Coming after you. There's no wall.
0: Father, I just thank you so much for the message. Thank you for this team. Thank you for the people that are here. Thank you for the people that are online watching. You're not able to be here with us. Father, it's a time of tithes, offerings, and gifts. Father, we just put that in your hands, and we just ask you to, to bless what it is you ask us to give to your kingdom. So we can go up that mountain. So we can chase people in dark corners. So we can go to that co-worker and share your love.
1: Father, we're grateful to have an opportunity to give to you cheerfully. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.